Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Fourteenth of December, Wednesday. Ridges of frost form ribs on the sweep of hills. Two rooks through calls against a sky marbled by the setting sun. Beyond the horizon, a pheasant startles a distant wood. My fingers and toes burn. Dim starlight on a frozen land. The water's surface scratched and glazed. This is the Narboderica, narrow casting on a bitterly cold December night, held fast in the ice in a world of ghostly white. I'm so pleased that you could make it tonight. It's not a night to be outdoors, so come inside where there's warmth and light and quiet company. There's a seat by the stove, the kettle is steaming. Make yourself comfortable and welcome aboard. As I sit at this little desk writing this, the skies are steel blue, but there's a heaviness in the air. Weather fronts are pushing up from the south, heavy with rain. And when it reaches us, It'll be snow and ice and ice rain, sometimes tonight or more probably in the morning. And I have a little light on above the study desk, and it feels like evening already. But there's a sound of children playing on the hill above us. The frost has been so thick, it looks and feels like snow. And when you walk on it, you scrunch through deep snowscapes and arctic tundra. It's the sound of caribou and sami bells. We've been locked into the ice now for a couple of days. Nighttime temperatures drop to below minus 10 degrees. That's 13 to 14 degrees Fahrenheit. And the water's surface turned hard to granite, crazed and pitted. Yesterday's footprints on the canal surface of the ducks and the moorhens leave fossilised tracks, rhymed now with new ice that glint. But the surface itself is as dull as an old pewter beer tankard. And I fear for the kingfishers. Everything I've read suggests that they will not have made it through this cold spell. It's been just a little too harsh, just a little too long. I keep thinking of the last time I saw the mail. It was the day before the big freeze hit us. It was a dismal, dank day. A wren was busying amongst the waterside vegetation, perky, jaunty, tail-high. And the kingfisher was on one of the tiller arms of one of the boats here. I kept walking toward him, very slowly, and then stopped. It seemed a miserable day to be scared off for no reason. And I was conscious that the freeze was coming, 
and was anxious that he managed to get as much food as he could. And as I watched, he suddenly dropped into the water and came up with a silver slither of minnow between his beak. The rain softly fell from a sky of gloom. The wren hopped away. I waited a while while he repositioned the fish so that he could gulp it down. And for a short while, we both shared that moment of slow rainfall. The ice now is very thick, thick enough to break a barge pole being wielded at it. Somehow there's a patch of open water, though, that the ducks seem to have kept clear of ice. It's not much bigger than a child's blow-up paddling pool, but it's big enough. They all seem to share it quite happily together. Even the swans join them from time to time. There seems to be a secession in hostilities and the petty tensions and disputes that generally order the Anseriform days. It's not for nothing that one collective noun for ducks is a battling of ducks. This change in behaviour is something that Christiane Ritter wrote about in a shockingly overlooked masterpiece, A Woman in the Polar Night. She was an Austrian who in 1933 joined her husband in the Arctic Circle to experience with him the polar night. It's a work of such captivating beauty and wisdom. All creatures grow timid in the winter night, she writes, as she describes how a juvenile Arctic fox slowly befriends them and shares for a while their lives together. And her husband and colleague, both seasoned hunters with many years' experience of polar winters and for whom foxes are their main source of income, also at this time live happily alongside him, often sharing their meagre meals with him. There seems to have been a tacit acceptance that for all to survive, old enmities must cease, for a while at least. And that seems to be the case with the ducks here. At least they all seem to be pulling together a lot more easily than they are, particularly in the spring. And when anyone emerges from their boat, loose daggles of mallards stride like saddle-sore John Waynes across the ice plains. And if food is to hand, and it usually is, these are quickly followed by honking and snorting flights, cutting low across the surface, alighting on the ice with increasing precision and dexterity. Last night wasn't so cold as it has been, and this morning it was just minus two, about 28.5 Fahrenheit. The boat has at last broken free of the ice, and a skim of water lies on top of the surface, turning the leaden stone greys to glistening slight whites, although now we're frozen fast once again. And every now and then the ice buckles and surges as the Erica shifts to our movements aboard, sending sonar pings and cracks whipping across the surface, and from time to time it grates against the hull and we have rejoined a world of movement. But we've been fine and the stoves are seen us through, keeping us warm, but providing more than that, providing us with a sense of comfort and somehow security, snug, cosy, 
protected. And we're grateful for that. And I, I want to be careful not to idealize this. I know that some boaters have been having a pretty miserable time of it recently. And for them, the temperature on their boat is not much higher than that outside it. And it must be cruelly hard to get by in those conditions. The joke among boaters is that the perennial question people ask is, is it cold in winter? When of course it, for the most part, is the opposite. It's far easier to warm a 60 foot by 7 foot by 6.5 foot box than it is to heat a house. But it still does require heating nonetheless. Without heat, a boat quickly becomes cold and damp. And you have to be able to warm it. You have to work at it. Learn how to use a fire that will burn slowly through the night. It isn't always easy, and can be wretched when you get it wrong. And we've all been there. And we've had no water for eight or perhaps nine days, perhaps actually even more. I suspect it's going to be another couple of days before the pipes properly unfreeze. But we've been managing okay, and it's good to be inventive. Find ways to use the same water multiple times. There are aspects about the last week or two that have been a challenge. But for me, not such a challenge as those really hot days in summer were. But then, having said all of that, I am looking forward to a few days, at least, of milder weather. And most of the people that I speak to seem to feel this way too. In Weatherland, writers and artists under English skies, Alexandra Harris notes that the Anglo-Saxons had a word, winter carry, the cares of winter. I've seen it translated sometimes as winter's sorrows. Perhaps that's a good rendering and suggests the experience of many with seasonal affective disorder. But I also like the cares of winter. Many of us, I think, are beginning to feel the weight of winter carry on our shoulders, and a respite would be welcome, to restock, replenish tanks, clean through, to watch the ducks relax back to their normal modes of living, to go out and look for my little kingfisher friends. I received a lovely email from Arabella Holtzapfel this week. So thank you so much, Arabella, for taking the trouble to get in touch. And I'm so thrilled that you see the podcast as being so personal and also universal. I like that. And thank you also for spreading the word about Nighttime on Still Waters. I really appreciate it. It's something I know that you'll know that I find really difficult to do. So, so thank you. And best wishes both to you and Roger. And hello also to Margaret, who, following last week's episode, sent me a copy of a photograph of when she was young. It's lovely, Margaret, and you look so happy there. And I hope that you are managing to keep warm where you are. And another fairly regular correspondent, Sue the Bread Lady, emailed to tell me about her British ancestry, and she made some scones to boot, providing some photographic evidence of it too and open up this entire and enduring debate about, is it scones or scones? And Sue leans towards the Cornish method, opting for jam first and cream on top, rather than the Devon method. 
of cream first and then jam later. Apparently so. According to some, the late Queen finally settled the matter by stating her preference for your way, Sue. So you're in really good company. Sue also posted a photograph of her younger self on the Facebook page, and you look extremely angelic in that picture, Sue. And thank you to Deb Moon Mountford for your comments on last week's episode, and I am pleased that you found so much in that episode to relate to. And hello and welcome to new listener Cheryl Hudson Lai, or is it Lee? I'm really glad that you found us, and thank you. Hello also to Laurie and Bodie, David Keating, Matthew Brusso. Matthew, I expect there's an increasing sense of excitement mounting in your household at the moment. And hello, Rory. And also, hello to Sam on Mastodon. Thank you for seeking me out. It's something that's not particularly easy at the moment. And I'm glad that you enjoyed the podcast, so thank you. We're now not many days away from the winter solstice, the years turning, midwinter. It's funny how odd things you hear stick, seemingly with a strength beyond their immediate apparent significance. Many years ago, a man was talking on the radio on a program that I've long since forgotten. I don't even recall what the programme was about, or whether I was deliberately listening to it. The radio, I think, just happened to be on, and this man was talking. And it's wrong, he said, to think of the solstice or Christmas, and I think the context was Christmas, as midwinter. Christina Rossetti's In the Bleak Midwinter may be a lovely poem and a lovelier carol, but Christmas falls actually toward the beginning of winter, not at its midpoint, he stressed. I'd always liked that carol. Well, the first verse, anyway. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, long, long ago. And like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the words and the music met together to create an emotional depth that I find, and still find, powerful. And I knew, even before this, that Rossetti's words were not an attempt to try to recreate some historical actuality like the painters of her time and before, the setting of ancient stories, both biblical and classical, within their own contemporary worlds was the vogue. Rossetti wasn't attempting to suggest that Roman Palestine was shivering under frozen drifts of snow. And I'm sure the disembodied voice on the radio pointed that out too. Rossetti was describing and setting the scene within her more northerly European landscape, not a Mediterranean one. However, that bit hasn't stuck in my head, and if he did say it, then I've long since forgotten it. <laughs> 
It was the midwinter comments that did, and I'm not too sure why. At the time I was working at my first job and still living at home, and it entailed a seven-mile bicycle ride through the Hertfordshire lanes from King's Langley to St Albans, and then seven miles home again. And although the punctures, sometimes three or four a week, used to get to me, overall I actually enjoyed those rides. They created a special space for my mind to run free, and opportunities to explore my psychogeographical landscape, both good and bad. And then, like now, it created in me an extreme awareness of my environments and the elements. I remember being wet and cold, often both. And cold days were marked by how quickly my fingers burnt. Before the turn-off from the A41s across the canal, wow, that must be cold. But making it to the top of the valley on the other side, always with scorched lungs on cold days, and it must be pretty mild. And no matter what gloves I wore, my fingers always seemed to burn, and then just ache, and finally bumping and swinging down the hill past the art college, over the railway line, sweeping down the little nest of shops and the Italian restaurant that we sometimes went to for dinner-plate-sized omelettes and chips, or meatballs served with surprising cheese and by then, on cold days, my fingers were numb and white, like the fingers belonging to another person, and it was only their dead weight that I felt, or the sickening ache if I banged them on something. Battling with the buckles of my saddlebag for my packed lunch. Marmite sandwiches, always marmite sandwiches. Or trying to disentangle myself from my wet weather gear and coats and jumpers. Then the next half hour as I sipped a mug of coffee, creamy with thick spoonfuls of coffee mate, while Terry Wogan played on the radio, and the tooth jangling pain as life crept back into my deathly fingers, which made my breathing shallow and the world ring in my ears. And so that was a time when I was very conscious of the weather the little climatic changes along the journey, the spots that were always cooler, those that offered shade, the unaccountable warm spots. And Mum always used to say that the cold before Christmas had a kind of different quality to the cold after it. Even though she much preferred winters to summers and hated the heat, she said that she always tended to find that the cold before Christmas harder to cope with than the cold after it. It was something that struck a chord in me too. Those pre-Christmas cycle rides to work in freezing temperatures always seemed to be more of an ordeal than those after it. Somehow the cold seemed to penetrate more. Of course I was very aware that the cold weather could stretch long into the following months after the new year, but it's also somehow more manageable. I don't know whether it was just a case that my body had slowly begun to acclimatise to the cold, or whether that the January and February freezes tended to be drier. Maybe, and I suspect this was the case, it was simply psychological. 
But whatever the case, Christmas and its proximity to the solstice seemed to me to function as a pivot point, even if it was a psychological one. Sure, if we follow the meteorological calendar, that places the beginning of winter at December the 1st, and it makes little sense to call it midwinter day. The man on the radio was right. Midwinter, certainly as far as the expectancy of cold weather is concerned, should fall somewhere around mid to late February. And yet, and yet, there's something in me that still finds that unsatisfactory. The seasons have always been more than simply meteorological, more than simply being about the weather, hot, cold. Perhaps what we're seeing here is a shift in our cultural perceptions and attitudes and understanding of seasons. We are no longer so intimately connected with the soil and the communities of life we live among. The outside world, the environment, really only touches us in one way, and that is the weather. It's the one element that we cannot control and arguably the remaining closest point of contact with our environment that we share. It's therefore quite natural to think of seasons in terms of cold and heat. However, the season of winter for us today denotes the time of cold, frost, sleet, snow, ice. Things that do not, or to our minds, should have no place in other seasons. And although we recognise that they can occur, we feel righteously miffed when they do. The weather's not playing ball. Snow in April is, somehow, not playing fair. Of course, this isn't to say that weather and temperature haven't always been at the heart of the different characters of the seasons. The Anglo-Saxon poem from Maxims II describes the character of three of the seasons specifically in terms of temperature, although even here it's not exactly what we would expect. The first lines read, Winter is the coldest, Spring the frostiest, Its longest cold. Certainly not the lyrical descriptions of spring that we are used to today. But the seasons historically have always denoted so much more. It wasn't simply the shifts in temperature that they were concerned with. There is a reason why the agricultural seasonal calendar differs from the meteorological one, and too the astronomical one. And there is a reason why the agricultural seasons feel less relevant to most of us today. That spirograph of cycles of livestock and arable husbandry, the planting, the harvesting, the breeding, the butchering, that would have been at the heart of a person's experience for most of history, together with the lunar cycles and the annual ebb and flow of daylight, are largely irrelevant to us. Today the shortening of our days as winter approaches is little more than an inconvenience, if that, perhaps a spike in our fuel bills. 
Artificial light allows us to retain our daily summer timetables. The rising and the setting of sun no longer regulates our schedules. People no longer tend to go to bed earlier in winter. Although interestingly, there's some research recently that suggests that we might be counting the cost for this luxury in both biological as well as psychological terms. It was another connection between human societies and the world around them. And whilst changes in temperature undeniably have an effect on the natural cycles of plant and animal life, it is the lengthening and shortening of the days that is more significant for triggering those important cues for growth, resurgence, nesting, breeding, pairing, resting, for floral life as well as fauna. Historically, it was the darkness as much as the cold that denoted winter, the Fimbelwetter, Fimbelwinter, the Great Winter, a time of darkness and paralyzing cold that lasted remorselessly for three straight years without respite, finally to culminate in Ragnarok, the death of the gods. And these themes run deep still culturally and psychologically. The dark, those forces against the light and the good, allied with the cold. Alan Garner's use of Thimblewinter in his weird stone of Brisingerman, the suffocating snows of Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising, the endless winter of C.S. Lewis's Narnia. It's not surprising that the first signals of the light returning were greeted with such celebrations when you fear Fimblewinter. Oh, no doubt the cold would remain with us for a while, but the light is returning. Fimblewinter and the agonies it augurs has not come, not come this year at least. And I was reminded of it reading Eleanor Parker's fascinating investigation of life through Anglo-Saxon year in her book, Winters in the World. The placing of the midwinter and its festivals around the time of the winter solstice, December the 21st, was deliberate. They had no need of a disembodied voice coming out of a radio to remind them that, as far as the cold went, things were only just starting. Maxims, too, proclaims that loud and clear. Which is the longest cold of the seasons? Not winter, but spring. And the man on the radio was missing the point. It was not the turning point of temperature that they were marking, but the pivot point that turns the oncoming tide of darkness. It was for just this reason, Elapna Parker writes, why the solstice was used by the church to celebrate the birth of Jesus. One of our earliest British historians and ecclesiastical writers, the Venerable Bede, writing the 7th the early 8th century, notes how the celebration of midwinter replaces the earlier pagan celebrations of light and motherhood. We have to wait another couple of centuries before the term Christmas is coined, and even later before it becomes more widely used. It's something that I've known for a long time and I have a much-loved and battered copy of Bede, 
but it was only reading Parker that the full significance of it struck home or struck home again. And it's actually a little more complicated than that, as most things often are. The date of December the 25th, according to the Gregorian calendar, was fixed because of an even earlier long-standing belief within the church that the conception of Jesus took place on the 25th of March, again according to the Gregorian calendar, and therefore the birth needed to fall precisely nine months later. However, even this date, falling as it does around the time of the spring or vernal equinox, is more than certainly informed by its association with birth and growth. Bede offers this as an explanation for the choice of the church placing Christmas at midwinter. To this, they add the explanation that it was fitting that the creator of eternal light should be conceived and born along with the increase of temporal light. There are some beautiful symmetries here that work in the northern European languages even more effectively than in the Latin or Greek. The Hebrew use of the Persian motifs of darkness and light are rendered anew within the early Christian writings, most notably the Johannine ones, the Gospel, the Letters, the Apocalypse. And the presentation of Jesus' light that has come into the darkness is now seen to be born in the material darkness of our longest night. The darkness in which the sun is reborn amidst the festivals of midwinter and Yola, Yule, and the near homophonic quality of Sunna, Sun, S-U-N, and Sunu, Sun, S-O-N, even closer in modern English capture and weld this association into our consciousness beautifully. And so Rossetti was right after all, and I look outside on this day of failing light, nearing midwinter's day, and the earth is as hard as iron, and the water is like a stone. And perhaps Mum was also onto something too. Yes, the cold continues, and will continue to continue for some while in its own peaks and troughs of its choosing. But something does change after Christmas, midwinter, and the turn of the year. The days get longer. Something rises again in our blood and in our hearts. Perhaps it's more in our minds than in the meteorological charts and statistics. But whatever, we're mentally better equipped knowing that the sun is making its vernal swing along the horizon to the north and climbing our skies ever higher. But then, as our ancestors knew, and we tend to forget, the seasons always denote far more than simply temperatures. And as we lie tonight, locked fast in the thick blanket of ice that creaks and groans, and the brittle world outside awaits the thaw, this is the Narrabo Terica, 
signing off for the night and wishing you a very warm, cozy, safe and restful night. Good night. Temperature outside, minus 3.1 degrees. Inside, 24 degrees. Humidity, 86%. Dew point, minus 3.5 degrees. Wind direction, south-southeast. Wind strength, 5 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1022, rising. Cloud cover, 10%. Cloud ceiling, none. Precipitation, nil. Moon phase, 34.3% waning crescent. Day length, 7 hours 43 minutes. Sunset, 15.55. Sky casting, 8.12.